You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. This is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 15. And I'm the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. This week I wanted to introduce you to a book that I discovered recently. I posted an excerpt from it on my Instagram podcast page. If you want to check out an excerpt from the book, otherwise I will include a link with the show notes. But the book is Epictetus Club by the author Jeff Trailer, who at the time of the experience that he recounts in the book was a newly arrived prison counselor. And the person then who taught him about Stoic philosophy and Stoicism was an inmate whose nickname was Zeno, which if you're familiar with the history of Stoicism, Zeno is a very important philosopher for Stoic philosophy. But it struck a chord with me because in the last 12 years, I've had the opportunity to engage with prisoners here in my area, both at the state prison level, the county prison level, and at the local courthouse. And there was one interaction, there's one relationship in particular with a man named Darby that has always been important to me ever since we first met five, six years ago. I guess it was six years ago now, almost seven. But Darby and I had very similar trajectories with very different outcomes. And what I mean by that is that Darby and I are the same age. And in 1996, when I was going through my conversion, questioning really the existence of God, the meaning of my life, all these questions that hit you when you're 21, 22, 23, 24 years old, Darby was having the same questions, going through the same processes as far as his thoughts and so forth. And we were both outlaws. We both were usually hanging out with the wrong people in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I had a bench worn out for my arrest at the time, but somehow by the grace of God, I was able to listen to voices that steered me in the direction of going to Mexico, volunteering as a missionary, working at an orphanage, teaching music, learning how to surf, doing outreach to 30,000 people in the valley, all of the experience working in a drug and rehab center. These were experiences and events that have had a profound effect, a significant and a lasting effect on my life ever since they happened in 1996-97. At the same time that I got on a plane to go to San Diego and then got on a bus to go to Mexico, Darby, wrong person, wrong place, wrong time, was convicted of not murder, but of being an accomplice in the act, in the committal of a murder, and he ended up going to jail. So Darby and I meet almost 20 years later, and the, the, the parallels in our lives and how he had gone left and I had gone right, so to speak, in our lives wasn't lost on either one of us. And the reason I bring it up then in relation to this reading today is that I became his pastor. And we went through some significant questions together then at that time because Darby had not committed the murder, and I believed him. He was sincere. He had revolutionized his life while in prison, become a model prisoner, a model citizen. He became a teacher. He became a mentor to other prisoners. The the warden considered him a valued member of the prison community. All of the guards actually respected Darby and gave him special privileges as a consequence But he couldn't get out of prison. He couldn't get paroled for various political reasons. 
So then when I met him, one of the big ticket questions, one of the big ticket items that we constantly discussed was if he took a plea deal and admitted that he committed the crime, he actually was guilty of murder rather than being an accomplice to murder. Darby was the driver in the car who he was in the car and the guy in the passenger seat went into another person's house, shot this man that he was having a dispute with, killed the man, got back in the car, they drove away. Darby was an accomplice after the fact. And so as a consequence, the district attorney said, if you plead guilty, we'll let you go right now. If you don't plead guilty, then you're going to serve an extra one, two, three years or until we decide to parole you. And he came to me for advice. What do I do? Do I admit my guilt so I can get out? Or do I maintain my innocence and maintain my integrity and my sense of dignity and acknowledge I didn't do it. I'm not going to admit to something I didn't do. I'm not going to take the deal and I'll serve the time. So in the context of those conversations, what really manifested itself, what became clear for Darby and myself within the context of those conversations was the nature of faith and the importance of faith, the concrete reality of faith versus the kind of abstract, intangible faith that people in prison really don't have the luxury of enjoying because everything is very concrete and real and the consequences, of course, are heightened, both good and bad. So we had that conversation. And as a consequence, what manifested from those conversations is I said to Darby one day, listen, there are people in here that you meet. There's people in here that I know. Growing up in a family of outlaws where most of the people in, on my dad's side of the family have been arrested, have been through court, have gone to prison at least one time, having been an outlaw myself, having gone to court and having, after the fact, having a bench warrant issued for my arrest for not showing up for court a second time. You can either look at it from the perspective of, I'm in prison right now. I'm physically in prison, but my mind is free. I'm a free man, even though I'm locked behind these walls. And if you look at it that way, if you embrace that, if you acknowledge the reality that even though you are locked within these walls, in fact, Darby is a paraplegic as a consequence of a car accident after um, he was arrested and released on bail and he had a car accident and then went back to court and so forth and so on. But he was in a wheelchair. He's paraplegic. And so he is a prisoner physically of this wheelchair. He is a prisoner physically within the walls of this prison. But he is a free man in his heart. He's a free man in his mind. He's a free man through his faith in Jesus Christ. And I said, Darby, you're either a free man or you're a prisoner. If you're a free man within these walls, then you'll be a free man when you get wheeled out of these walls. If you're a prisoner outside of these walls, then you will be a prisoner when you come inside these walls. You're either always a free man, no matter where you're at, or you're always a prisoner, no matter where you're at. And I've seen, in my experience, many people who were prisoners in their own mind and in their own hearts who were paroled, got out of prison, and because they were still prisoners to themselves, they were still prisoners to their bad habits and their vices and their obsessions and their cravings, immediately went back to prison. Because they're prisoners beyond just the four walls of that prison. So as a consequence, Darby, as a free man, took responsibility for his part in the crime, but would not admit to the murder because that was not his responsibility to bear. That was not his burden to carry. And the man who had committed the murder had even testified then after the fact that Darby had nothing to do with the murder. He was entirely responsible 
the man who admitted to the murder, and that Darby was simply the driver of the car and happened to be there. Wrong person, wrong place, wrong time. It doesn't negate Darby's responsibility. doesn't negate the fact that he was an accomplice to a crime, whether willingly or unwillingly. But it goes to the point of there's justice, and then there is taking a burden upon yourself that is not yours to carry as far as justice is concerned, as far as moral right and wrong. So Darby served out another two and a half years then beyond his original sentence because of the district attorney and because he wouldn't sign the deal. And yet those last two, two and a half years that he served out of his sentence then were not a burden for him like they had been previous to that because he was free. His conscience was free. His heart was free. And because I had absolved him, he had confessed his sin and I absolved him, his conscience was free. And therefore, he was able to serve the time. He was able to do it. He was able to continue in his responsibilities as a mentor, as a teacher within the prison system. So then when he got out of prison, it wasn't that significant of a transition for him because he was free inside and therefore he was free outside. He was free within the context of the prison to take responsibility for himself and his actions. Once he got out, he was still free to take responsibility for the consequences of his actions. So for me, a guy like Darby, who, like I said, started off in a very similar place to me when he was 22, 23, 24 years old. He went one direction, I went the other direction, and yet we come back together later, and I'm a pastor, and he's a prisoner. And yet, we're both free men. Free men in faith, free men in our consciences, and yet still struggling with these big questions about God and the meaning of life and our responsibilities and the consequences of our actions. And do you run from them? Do you embrace them? Do you allow others to dictate to you the parameters of your freedom? Or do you say to the warden or the district attorney or the parole board or the person who points the finger and says, you're guilty and you deserve to rot in this prison until you die? Can you say to them, I hear what you're saying and I respect what you have to say because it's your opinion and it's your perspective and it's how you see the consequences of my previous actions. But I can tell you also in the past 20 plus years, this is the person that I've become. And therefore, this is what I believe to be true. This is my opinion. This is where my conscience is at today. And so reading the Epictetus Club then, it brought me back to Darby. It brought me back to all the people that I visited in prison, some who've gotten out and now are members of my congregation, others who are still in prison and will never get out. But the point is, is that every single person that I talk with in those prison visits, in those jail visits, thanks to Darby, I have a different approach vector. I have a different attitude towards those prisoners now because not only can I sympathize with them, not only can I say, well, I've, I've walked in your shoes before, I've stood in your place before, but instead of my life going this direction and me ending up in prison as your celly, I've actually gone the other direction and now I'm on the other side of the table talking to you and advising and counseling you about your life, about taking responsibility for your decisions, about the, the, the big picture stuff, about God, life, the universe, the meaning of everything. But it always comes back to, it always leads to that point that Darby and I got to, which is, are you free or are you a prisoner? Not just physically, but in your mind and in your heart. Because as I say, 
If you're free in your mind and you're free in your heart and you're free in your conscience, then you're free no matter where you're at. But if you are a prisoner of your own cravings, a prisoner of your own obsessions, a prisoner of your bad habits, then it doesn't matter whether you're in prison or not. You're a prisoner. So let's dive into Trailer's book. This is an excerpt from modernstoicism.com. I include a link in the show notes along with a link to Amazon if you want to buy the book. This is the Epictetus Club Extract 1 by Jeff Trailer. I'd been thinking about what Zeno said at our last meeting, that people were not upset by things themselves, but by what they told themselves about those things. At first, I had my doubts, but I was also open to considering it. So I decided to pay attention to my thoughts the next time I was worried, upset, or angry. It did not take long to find my first opportunity. Driving home that evening after work, someone cut me off on the freeway and then had the nerve to give me the we're number one sign. My instant reaction was to think, who the hell does he think he is? I'm going to pull up beside him and tell him a thing or two. Then I thought of what Zeno had said and tried something new. I told myself, that guy is obviously having a bad day, and I don't need to make him a part of my day. I'll just take a deep breath and go on listening to the radio. To my amazement, and just as Zeno predicted, my feelings about the situation changed from anger to minor annoyance, and then to complete indifference about the other guy. I felt more in control of my feelings and actions than I ever had. I could not wait to talk with Zeno again. So it's interesting at the very beginning of this excerpt, Zeno, the inmate, is explaining to Trailer, the prison counselor, who's technically a free man, that he's a slave to his own emotions. That is, Trailer is. He's a slave to his own emotions. He's a slave to his own habits and attitudes. And Zeno, the inmate, is the free man telling the supposedly free man, you're a slave to your desires, man. You're a slave to your emotions, slave to your habits. Break them. Take control. Take responsibility. So trailer continues, when Friday rolled around, I stopped by Zeno's house. I preferred thinking about it that way. For our chat, and found him reading a little book with the strange title Enchiridion. He promptly laid it down on his stand, and it was then that I noticed a snapshot in a matchstick frame sitting on the stand. In the photo, one could see Zeno smiling broadly, surrounded by boxing promoter Don King, former heavyweight champion Joe Lewis, and someone I did not recognize. Zeno explained that the photo had been taken about a year earlier when Don King brought ABC, Wide World of Sports, to the prison to televise some professional bouts on national TV. King's entourage included Joe Lewis, one of America's greatest heroes, and an unknown young boxer named Larry Holmes. Don told me to be sure to get Larry in the picture. I didn't know who he was, but Don said that he would one day be the heavyweight champion of the world. So Larry was kind enough to get into the photo with me. We'll see if Don was right, or just blowing smoke from one of his big cigars, said Zeno. By the way, Incaridian literally means uh, dagger. It was a ceremonial dagger that Romans, for example, wore on their hip. It was the dagger that Brutus stabbed Julius Caesar to death with and the other senators at the time. But yeah, Incaridian literally means dagger, or a ceremonial dagger something that you can pull quickly and wield to defend yourself to counterattack. So Incaridian is literally a dagger that you carry at your hip. It's a weapon that you carry at your hip. 
Zeno paused to look at the photo and then said that he used to do some professional boxing in Akron. Quote, at the time, I did not know how important that would be to helping me survive in the pen, but it was literally, it has literally saved my life. How many fights have you been in with other inmates, I asked. At first, a lot, but none for the past 10 years, he said with a wry smile. My boxing skills now help me avoid that kind of trouble. He went on to ask if I remembered what he had said about the importance of our thoughts, and I described him, my incident of road rage on the freeway, and how I had calmed myself down just by changing what I was telling myself. You'd probably be a good boxer, he said. Thinking skills and boxing skills are very similar. Think of yourself as in a boxing ring with an opponent, but your opponent is not another person. Your opponent is your own thinking. There are some thoughts that can take you out, out for the count. Like your thought of who the hell does he think he is? I see it all the time in here. Of course, the thought that has knocked out nearly everyone here is, I won't get caught. He laughed and went on. A good boxer is able to recognize and anticipate what his opponent is going to do. Is able to recognize the punch that is coming, block it, then throw up a counterpunch. In our thinking, if we can recognize self-defeating thoughts as they come up, block them, and then respond with a productive counterpunch, we can avoid trouble and live a good life. If we can't do that, we'll have a life of pain and turmoil. But just like in boxing, it takes practice, practice, practice. Good thinking is not a haphazard enterprise or something that some are born with and some are not. Are you saying that thinking well is not a question of intelligence, but a matter of skill, I asked? Exactly. And it is also a question of bravery. Bravery? Yes, bravery. The ancient Greeks said that learning to think well is a moral virtue. They called courage because it takes commitment and effort. They also said that those who do not take pains to learn to think clearly are committing the moral vice of cowardice. Just as someone on a battlefield who runs away out of fear of getting hurt is a coward, so are people who refuse to take the necessary pains to change their lives also cowards. Those who do take the pains and effort are demonstrating courage. Just as much as the person on the battlefield who overcomes fear of injury and fights for a good cause. How does one develop these skills? The way we do it in here is to get together at the Epictetus Club. The Epictetus Club, what's that? It's a group of inmates who meet once a week. We are open to everybody who would like to come regardless of age, race, religion, or criminal offense or even whether you are an inmate or a staff member. The prison chaplain is our staff advisor, but he mostly just provides the space for us to meet on Friday nights. I like to think of it as Friday nights at the fights. But our fights are with our own thoughts and attitudes. Remember, thinking is like boxing. Identify the thought, block it, and counterpunch. Speaking of the Epictetus Club, I had better start getting ready for the meeting. Have a good weekend, and I'll see you Monday at the gate. And that's the end of the first extract from the book, The Epictetus Club, Lessons from the Walls. So, especially for those of us who are fighters and who train mixed martial arts or train in boxing, train in Muay Thai, Jiu-Jitsu, wrestling, whatever it might be, I had this conversation with my training partner, the other Muay Thai coach at my gym yesterday. We've been training out of his garage for 
well, two months now. But one of the things that we've been able to accomplish in the past two months of training is to significantly accelerate our learning of particular techniques, specifically within the context of combinations, movement, clinch work, and overall sparring intelligence because the two of us trust each other. And therefore, we trust the other person to not injure us, to not go too hard, to not do anything that's going to cost either one of us time away from this thing that we love doing. And as a consequence then, like I said, we can already tell after eight weeks how much we've improved in our sparring, how much we've improved in our technique. And the reason is when you're teaching Muay Thai, you're learning, but you're learning at a decelerated rate because you're having to repeat the basics and the fundamentals for students over and over again. Not everybody, most people actually, in my experience, who train in Muay Thai are not interested in actually fighting. They do it for self-defense. They do it for the physical fitness aspect of it. They do it for the self-confidence aspect, but they're not going to sign up for a fight or a tournament. So you're constantly having to go back as an instructor and, re and review knees and elbows, striking, kicking, footwork, um, distance management, all these different aspects that are fundamental in Muay Thai that you have to constantly work. And I would never encourage anybody to not work fundamentals all the time and become rock solid in the fundamentals. However, at a certain point, you have to build on those fundamentals. And when you're a coach and an instructor and you're able to work with other coaches and instructors, and my, uh, my training partner, my coach, my fellow instructor has been fighting and training for over 22 years now, both as a professional MMA fighter, Muay Thai fighter. He was an MP in the military. He outweighs me by 70 pounds. Shout out to Greg. And therefore, his experience, his wisdom, his encouragement has elevated me far and above what I could learn just working out in the gym every day or even teaching in the gym every day because I don't have that much experience. I don't have the time in the cage. I don't have the time in the ring like he does. Therefore, what he's able to impart to me elevates my game, elevates my learning, and as a consequence, then he can work what he needs to work because he's brought me alongside of himself. And therefore, we're both improving simultaneously. And as we were talking about yesterday when we finished, right now in jiu-jitsu with my apocalypse buddy, because we're not able to necessarily study technique, learn technique in the gym, roll with multiple partners, it's just the two of us, we're doing a lot of repetitive techniques, fine-tuning the guard pass, fine-tuning side control, fine-tuning certain submissions that we really want to sharpen. And yet, because we're rolling together all the time, we're so used to each other that it's easy to fall into habits and patterns with the other person because you can become comfortable. So in a strange sense, my jujitsu has slowed down to a certain degree, whereas my Muay Thai training has accelerated as far as learning and technique and so forth. That's not bad. It's just the point being then that what I can tell then is from the Muay Thai training and how that's translated into the rest of my life, along with the jujitsu training, is in Muay Thai, you're always thinking. And there's, you know, even when you're clinching, you're working leverage, you're working different approaches from within the clinch. You're trying to manipulate arms and elbows and shoulders and heads and hips and knees and so forth. All of this is happening simultaneously in two-dimensional space versus grappling, which is more of three-dimensional space. But you're always thinking. 
And you cannot allow yourself to become emotional. You cannot allow yourself, you cannot allow, allow fatigue, for example, when you're sparring. You can't allow that fatigue to diminish the technique and then fall back into old habits and old patterns because you're not focused, you're not thinking, and therefore you're not acting properly and you're not executing on the technique. Likewise, then in life, when we're fatigued, when we're stressed and we're anxious, when we're prisoners of our cravings and our obsessions, rather than do what we know is necessary and really think it through, really drive forward and focus on the fundamentals, what do I need to do? What's the right thing to do? What is the good thing to do? How do I get there? What's the struggle going to look like? What's the path to change? How do I commit myself again or recommit myself to living a morally virtuous or morally good life and not becoming a coward? What does it mean to have courage and bravery? And how do I commit to that both in my thinking and in my doing? And do it in such a way that I develop this consistency, which becomes this habit and this good habit. So that rather than default to bad habits and rather than default to emotion and feeling, defaulting to moral vice and cowardice, which causes me to run away from my problems or run away from the crisis or the struggle or the challenge. Rather, I run toward it. I recognize that everybody's afraid. Everybody's afraid of being in prison and not being able to get out. Everyone's afraid of not being able to overcome that challenge or that struggle. Everyone's afraid of falling back into those bad habits, those addictions, but rather to overcome that fear of injury, overcome that fear of relapse, overcome that fear of going back to prison, whatever that prison is, and rather fight for the good cause, fight the good fight of faith, fight for yourself, fight for your family, fight for your friends, fight for your teammates, fight because to not fight is to exercise cowardice, it's to quit, it's to run away, which is definitely the easy downhill path. Running away is always the easier method. And in, in a street fight, 100%, I tell people, your first and most effective self-defense in a street fight is to run away from the fight because there's so many variables. But when you're fighting with yourself, you face yourself, you face your fears, you overcome those fears of personal injury, of emotional trauma, you overcome those bad habits you've developed and you recognize and you acknowledge to yourself the way forward is the way of freedom and the way back is the way of slavery and imprisonment. So do I want to be a prisoner or do I want to be free? Do I want to be a free man and woman in my thinking? Do I want to be a free man or woman in my heart, in my conscience? Or do I want to be a slave? Do I want to be a prisoner to my own mind and to my own feelings, to my own cravings and obsessions and addictions and bad habits. What do I want? Do I want to be free or do I want to be a slave? And then how do I fight that fight? How do I accomplish that fight? And for me, Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu and mixed martial arts, they prepare me. Those are the fundamentals of life. And therefore I can't stop training Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu because that would mean to be giving up on the fundamentals that prepare me for life. Those are the fundamental techniques for life that when I learn them in jiu-jitsu and I learn them in Muay Thai, they are immediately applicable to the rest of my life. And therefore, I can't just quit and say they're not essential and they're not necessary. I can't let other people, whether it be a governor or the media or my neighbor's opinion, deter me from doing what I know is essential, what I need to do to be equipped 
to fight the good fight and to surround myself, even if it's just two people or three people right now, I need to surround myself with people who are going to carry their shield, who are going to pick up their weapons, their Incaridian, that dagger, and they're going to charge into the fight with me so that if I fall, they'll catch me. And if they fall, I'll catch them. And that I'm not in this alone, but rather the Darby of the world or the Greg of the world, whoever it might be that you have in your life, that's going to fight with you alongside of you, that's your brother or sister. Those are the people, especially right now during the coronavirus, those are the people who show up for you now. Those are the people that are the good people. Those are the true warriors who embody that warrior ethos, who are saying to you, I need you to be with me because I need this right now too. This is essential to my health and well-being right now. And if I don't have you in my life right now and I don't have this thing right now in my life, then I am in danger of becoming overcome by my fears and my bad habits and all the things that I've suppressed and conquered and overcome to this point. They're all threatening me right now and I need you to fight alongside of me. And then you say to them, I need you too. And all of a sudden now you're stronger than you were before because now it's just not one of you with a knife. It's two of you or three of you or four of you or whatever it might be. So again, I'll include a link to this excerpt plus a link to the book. And as always, thank you so much for supporting the podcast. Thank you for the PayPal donations that help support the podcast and everything that I do with the podcast, especially right now when times are so financially difficult for many of us. Thank you for sharing the podcast on social media and promoting it. Um, yeah, it's just, it's phenomenal. I'm so grateful for all of you to give me the feedback and, and support the show. And I'm glad that it's, it's reaching people and that it's helping. So I'll see you Sunday for a brand new episode. Peace.